As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Soccer 101, the podcast where we scratch the soccer riches you never knew you had. As we record, we're in the midst of the European preseason, where Europe's biggest teams are racking up the air miles, playing friendlies across the globe, where players are training with teams they might not play for in a few weeks, and where Antonio Conte is making his players hate him by making them run really hard in South Korea. In this episode, we're looking at preseason. What is it? What does it consist of? Why do we have it? And how? Has it changed? My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me for some preseason fun and games, we have Mr. Taylor Rockwell. Hello. We have Joe Lowry. Ahoy. And Graham Ruthven. Hello, Graham. Hello, Ryan Bailey. Hello, Graham. Let's start off, Graham, with a very simple, might be a slightly obvious question, but why do we have a preseason in soccer? So to strip it all the way back, and this may be very simplistic, but this is our starting point. The purpose of pre-season is to prepare for the season ahead. So once the season gets started, it's pretty mu- it's busy pretty much from August all the way through to May, if you're looking at the European calendar, or February through to November slash de- uh, December if you're an MLS team or an American team. So the month or two that you get on the training pre- pitch in pre-season is very valuable, and it's pretty much the only block of training you have with players to communicate new ideas or work on new strategies and yes you can do that during the season but it's it's much more difficult during during the season where you have games to contend with and you have uh, opposition teams to prepare for so pre-season offers managers an opportunity to raise the fitness levels of their players so for some managers who already have a squad of players that they have worked with for a long period of time pre-season might largely be about that it might be just about fitness because their team already know what to expect from their manager the manager already knows the players and um, but for some new managers it's a chance to mold the team in your old image and there was there was in your own image sorry and there, there was a really good contrast between these two approaches in the Manchester City Liverpool preseason game just this week. So Klopp, who's obviously been at Liverpool for a long time, he knows the qualities of his squad and he changed his full team three times during the 90-minute match to give everyone a run out. So he basically saw that match as a fitness exercise. Whereas Ertin Hag 
Obviously, he doesn't know his squad very well. He's getting used to that that team. He's come into a new job and he didn't make so many changes. In fact, I think it took him until into the second half to make his, his first change of the match. And so that match that in pre-season in general for him is, seems to be more about the tactical side of things than the fitness side of things, although I'm sure the fitness side is also important to him. Indeed it is. Joe, um, let's be clear about Europe's preseason. When does it start? When do players report back to their teams? And we should probably make a, a, a note about MLS and how the timings there differ too. Sure. There, it is different because there's different calendars involved here. Europe goes from fall to spring and MLS goes from spring to fall. Looking at Europe first, there is some fluidity here because of the timing. So European-based players are usually back in training at the end of June. So that's about six weeks after the end of the season. That's about the standard off-season length. Players who don't have international duty go about and get about six weeks off, and so they'll be back at the end of June. Players with international duty, which is often in June at the end of a season, whether that's Nations League, whether that's World Cup, whether that's some other international tournament, typically get six weeks or something close to that after the end of those competitions. So they're, they're returning later. It is fluid. So players on teams in the Euros or whatever that's like, they'll, they'll be back later. And the other thing here that may change things is depending on the European League and your level, players on teams in early stage European competition games. By that, I mean basically just the, the very opening rounds that most people don't even know about of the UEFA Champions League between teams that might play in Northern Ireland and teams that might be in Scandinavia and teams that might be in smaller European countries that are fighting for a spot in the Champions League group stage. Those games, are, as we're recording in mid-July, are already happening and have been happening for a little while now. So there is some, uh, some fluidity there as well. Not every European team uses the exact same calendar either. So generally speaking, for the big five five leagues in Europe, you're looking at about six weeks, ending up at some point in May, coming back at some point at the end of June or early July, depending on when you finish. In MLS, it's a similar time frame, just the, the calendar is all different. So if the season starts somewhere between February and early April, which it, it does tend to do, MLS should probably figure that out a little bit more and get some consistency there. But just wind back six weeks, basically, and you're there for the start of preseason. So six weeks is, is the, the buzzword. That's the term that I think about when I'm looking at preseason lengths. And I, I think that's or looking at offseason lengths headed into preseason. And then you get a stretch of preseason before the real season starts. Right. And it's most most professional contracts will start on July 1st as well. So like this season, for example, we haven't had a major tournament. It'll tend to be that almost all European players are back with, uh, by July 1st. And I think we had the first Premier League friendlies around sort of July 9th and 10th, didn't we, this season around as well. So that's a pretty short lead time going into it. Taylor, um, I mentioned in the intro Antonio Conte working his players pretty hard in Seoul during their preseason um, training. Um, we have to presume that preseason training is pretty different from regular season training to get the players up to speed after they may have had a few weeks um, eating Nando's with their feet up. Yeah, I, I believe so. Because I think, yeah, there, there are expectations uh, that players are coming in mostly fit, if not fully fit. And we know managers like Hernan Lozada uh, will, and Marcelo Bielsa will, will weigh players and will do a lot of testing that way to make sure that players are already kind of coming in with a minimum fitness standard. But then I do think, yeah, preseason is about... A couple different things. It is about the fitness and you're going to get all of the that sort of really fun, ridiculous amount of, of running and effort put in in that preseason or demanded in that preseason. There was video today as we're recording in mid-July of Antoine Griezmann like running up a hill for two straight hours because that's what Atleti do to start off their preseason training. And so I think there's a ton of fitness involved, but I think it's also 
meant to sort of gauge where players' heads are because if you're demanding a lot of them and everybody's up for it, it becomes a bonding thing. It can be a competitive thing. It can sort of help unify the team. But if you have people whose heads are gone or just aren't really up for it or aren't really ready for it, I think that will also stand out pretty quickly. And so you'll get situations in which very early on in preseason, you already have sort of the senior team that's training, and then you'll get the the bomb squad or the reserve team that has some of the players that aren't going to be involved in the plans uh, training later on in the day or at different points because they're already sort of seen as not quite fitting into the system or the style of the manager. Uh, Taylor, to clarify, you're talking about Atletico Madrid training going up and up hills. Uh, I think they're just doing the Kate Bush themed preseason. Uh, exactly, exactly. Yeah, Exa- yeah. Um, and that, that reminds me that soccer preseason isn't always about playing soccer and and running up hills. No. There can be a lot of bonding involved as well. And like Wimbledon um, back in the day, for example, to use a personal example, would always go to the same military um, base. I think it was in Wales where they do Graham. Do, do, is it called like a sheep dip where you, where you go on under a tunnel and it's completely water and you have to come out like six feet later like there's lots of that kind of um stuff which i don't that think they do like quite hell. as much anymore yeah yeah i think it's called the sheep dip where it's taylor have you heard of that where it's it sounds i've heard awful. of i've heard of stuff like that i remember uh vcu uh the basketball team here the college basketball team uh when they were coached by shaka smart they played a system called havoc which is basically just a full court press it's high intensity and their preseason was like two days, I think it was two days or maybe four days of full on Navy SEAL training. <laughs> like they had to like swim the river, go on these like 20 mile hikes, like carry boats. It was insane, but it gets you physically fit for the season to come. And yeah, I think also helps you bond and you're sort of into this kind of unified unit and you're all pulling together ideally and it sets you up for a strong season or as has been the case in the past, you get overworked, everybody gets really frustrated and you have a terrible season and the manager is sacked <laughs> really quickly. It's a it's a finely balanced uh, like edge of the blade. But I do love that it, there's other aspects away from like the hardcore uh, intensity. I was reading about uh, Axel Tuanzibi today, the Manchester United center back who, amongst other achievements, uh, while on preseason tour, set a Guinness Book of World's record for the fastest clearing of a Hungry Hungry Hippos game. Uh, so Let's I guess go. there are things that they will do away from the pitch <laughs> that you can imagine the whole team Unreal. sort of getting really into Hungry Hungry Hippos was, and it becoming a competitive thing. Was this social era that this happened? <laughs> Almost certainly. Almost certainly. Yeah, that, we've, we've just, that explains a lot. We found wow. out a lot here. Yeah, everyone else is running Manchester United playing board games and having a lie-in. Yeah. Wow. I'm, just, I'm just picturing the training ground. Ed Woodward standing on a balcony looking down at Hungry Hungry Hippos and just nodding like, mm-hmm. Well, he's worrying. I mean, faster, Axel. But, faster. I mean, yeah, nodding and demanding it be faster, but then also trying to find some commercial tie-in for uh, Hungry Hungry Hippos in a way to make Get that. Get HHH uh, on the phone right now. Exactly. We need Hungry Hungry Hippos on speed dial right away. Get the, me HHH on the phone. The other, the other thing I'll add here, just to go back quickly, sorry, to, to fitness and training. That is a really big part of this whole thing. Bonding is to, I remember early in the Greg Berhalter tenure with the U.S. Men's National Team, this is not club, so it's a very different situation with a different cadence. But they would do crossword puzzles and, and all that sort of things together. That feels like the most Greg Berhalter thing ever. Just Berhalter and Bobby Warshaw sitting on a podcast doing crossword puzzles together feels very right. Um, it does. But thinking about 
what the physical requirements are for training, I never realized how detailed this was. It, it, it's not just when, when teams, fitness coaches and, and head coaches and the entire staff are trying to prepare their teams for the season. It isn't, it isn't just, let's get them to 90 minutes fit as fast as we can. Grant, you mentioned Man U and Liverpool playing with Liverpool rotating every 30 minutes or so, and then Manchester United rotating a lot less often. Another possible reason behind that, outside of the familiarity that Klopp has with his squad relative to, to Eric Ten Hag, is just that Liverpool might not be as far along in their training process in preseason as Manchester United, to the point where players realistically, without risking injury, really can't go at top speed for any more than 30 minutes. It sounds kind of ridiculous because we think, okay, I could go out there and, and run for 30 minutes. I'd be dead tired afterwards, but I could do that tomorrow and be fine. I could go for 45 minutes and be fine but not at a, a professional athlete's level, nor at their recovery time afterwards. There's a whole map with a ton of detailed metrics coming from the, the body trackers that they wear on their chest, or it's actually on their back with that sports bra. There's so much information that staffs are parsing through to monitor each individual player to then figure out, okay, this is literally how much running you should be doing, how many minutes you can play on match day. And, and once preseason games actually start, the cadence is pretty similar. So you might have a week or two without games where you're just kind of ramping up. Then once the game starts, it's usually about a once-a-week cadence. You do follow the regular season schedule, which is also really, really detailed in terms of the training intensity. You have match day. At least this is how a lot of things are done now, or at least this is how it's been done in my experience of being around a professional club. You have match day, and then you either get match day plus one, so let's say your game's on Saturday. You either get Sunday or, or match day plus two, which would be Monday off. And you have a light training on whichever day you don't get off. Then you train pretty normally the rest of the days, although in preseason, again, there's a lot that goes into this. And then match day minus one, which would be Friday in this example, is going to be a really light day that's getting you ready for Saturday. So there's a, a lot of detail that goes into organizing all of this. Fitness coaches have a lot on their plate to measure the loads and maintain players' health. And, and I think a lot of the tracking for that stuff is a really – a lot of coaches are hyper-focused on that in preseason to prevent as many injuries as they can. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to dig even further into preseason. Back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Soccer 101, welcome back. We are talking all things preseason. Joe, are there particular coaches who are renowned for being, I don't know, preseason hard asses <laughs> in terms of the uh, routines they put on? And maybe conversely, are there any coaches who are, who are I don't know, I suppose it's Solskjaer with his hungry, hungry hippos. I've answered the question there. <laughs> I just know that I want to go to whatever training is playing the Hungry Hungry Hippos and not to VCU's basketball with Shaka Smart, smart circa 10 years ago or whatever that was. Yeah. <laughs> um, coaches that are, are really difficult. Ryan, you mentioned one, I believe, in the intro. Antonio Conte. I learned yesterday, doing research for this, that his fitness coach on his staff, yeah. Gian Piero Vertone, has the nickname The Marine, which... Yeah. <laughs> 
would be enough to deter me from signing with Tottenham at this point, to be totally honest. So this, uh, this is a pullout from an article from The Athletic that they wrote about Tottenham's preseason. And this is a direct quote. The players who lasted until the end completed 42 laps of the pitch, some with short breaks in between. Oh, good. Some with short breaks. That's encouraging. Taking in a total of around 4,200 meters, all done at pace in extreme heat and humidity and after an already demanding session. No, thank you. Mm, no, I want my ketchup, and I don't want to be doing 42 laps at altitude or whatever the heck else was in, in Tottenham's training session. So Conte goes hard. you got Diego Simeone doing something similar. A lot of the coaches that you would think of are doing this stuff, although I'm guessing every team has some variation of this kind of stuff, the beep test, etc. Marcelo Bielsa is another one. Bielsa just wants a ton of running. He plays murder ball, which is 11 v 11 with no stoppages. This is in training, I should be clear. It's no stoppages. Ball is constantly in play. There's like this army of coaches that surround the training pitch that their only job is to get the ball back in play quickly. And it's incredibly physically demanding. Bielsa, uh, Bielsa at Leeds was doing some really difficult stuff with his players, which feels very fitting when you think about how Leeds United played under Bielsa in the first place. Joe, I'm glad you explained what murder ball, murder ball was because... Along the lines of the Hungry Hungry Hippos, I thought maybe that might have been another game. <laughs> and just every Premier League manager in preseason, Thomas Tuchel, he's got his players playing Tumbling Monkeys. And yeah, everyone has just got a different game. So I'm glad you explained that. Yeah. Do you guys see me on who just has Thunderdome? That's their fun preseason yeah. game. It's just, yeah. He throws a knife into a cage and whoever comes out wins. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> There's my starting center back. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, think, I think the other interesting thing with, with the fitness demands is the idea that like you're not going to always have that unified team and so i was reading from like some ex players about what preseason can be like based on your situation and if you are a member of that first team then you're out there proving that you belong and kind of proving your status making sure that you've cemented your starting spot but there are other players who if they have a falling out with the manager or they are either they themselves want to transfer or they clearly feel like they're not in the manager's plans, then there's an element of, do I want to do all of this to potentially injure myself to then limit my options going forward? And so there's this balance of you're trying to get the whole team ready from a fitness standpoint, from a technical standpoint, and a tactical standpoint, but at the same time, you're also trying to get your team into a unified hole for that first game of the season and then going forward. So there's this element of getting everybody fit, but also figuring out who sort of like the malcontents are, who are uh, already sort of looking for a move, and then figuring out how, either how to get them back into the team or to get them sold, sold on pretty quickly. Graham, um, Taylor just mentioned there getting the team as a unified whole. But that can be a problem when, you know, the transfer window, say in the Premier League, is yeah. until September 1st. So we're getting players arriving after preseason or during a team's preseason. And we have some players like we've heard that Cristiano Ronaldo hasn't reported back for training with Manchester United, for example. So how does how does the team get on the same page and how much of it is, is an issue when you have new signings and players who decide they're paid six figures a week but don't want to turn up? It can it can be difficult, and I think we've kind of referenced it already with what we've what we've detailed um, in this podcast. But players report for for different times. So if there's a major tournament last last season, you had a whole load of England players not involved 
for their clubs until the second or third week of the season because they had the, the Euros, they, England obviously got to the final, it was the same in Italy, they got to the finals, there was a lot of players started the Serie A season late as well, you have, as you say there, Ryan, that the transfer window is open, so last year Harry Kane, did he returned late after the Euros and actually didn't return because he wanted to, uh, he was trying to force through a move to Manchester City, this summer you have Cristiano Ronaldo and the reason players do it, do that at this point of the season is um, to express displeasure at not being allowed to to what to do what they want to do but they're not breaching the legal terms of their contracts as well so players can't just miss competitive games otherwise they are in breach of contract they can be fined maybe they don't care about being fined but that they they would be in breach of contract if they did it through the season so pre-season is a time when the stakes are a little bit lower but they can make a statement and based on the, the reporting today of Cristiano Ronaldo, Chelsea are no longer in for Cristiano Ronaldo. That that point about the stakes being lower, Cristiano Ronaldo can just return to training next week if, if he hasn't got his way with his tail between his legs and there there pretty much won't be really any, any uh, consequences. In the same way that Kane just got on with things last season when he didn't get that move to Manchester City. But if you do that during the season, maybe there would be more of a knock-on effect. Indeed. Um, Taylor, have you had any data points about how many actual games teams play in preseason from what I could see from uh, sort of anecdotally looking it was about between three and six and you look at say Liverpool for example they're playing five preseason games Man United are playing six but we know they rely on game time more than training because they just play board games during training <laughs> um, the, the one that stood out to me Taylor was Man City as far as I can see are only playing two preseason games uh, Club America in Texas and then Bayern at Lambeau Field so it does seem to really vary how many games a team yeah. plays before the season starts I think, and this is maybe jumping ahead in what we're going to be talking about a little bit, but I think a lot of it has to do with the the preseason tour and what the team is doing with that. Because obviously, like smaller clubs aren't going to go on giant tours around the world. They're going to have more dedicated preseasons where they're probably playing closed door friendlies or they're playing inter squad scrimmages pretty often. Whereas, like Liverpool, for example, I believe I'm correct in saying that once they finish this tour, they will then have another preseason camp in Austria, I think. And that's where they will do a lot more of the actual preseason work. So this is more of a like glorified PR vacation where they play some soccer. And then I think you get more of that intensity in the training once they're settled into their actual preseason digs. And my guess would be that there they're playing probably again some closed door friendlies against local opposition to get those sort of tune up minutes. So I think it really does vary. Uh, but I think what we see as the like uh, publicly facing games, uh, like those ones on the big tours where they're playing yeah, in Lambeau Field, as you said, or in Texas or wherever it may be. I think those aren't necessarily as important for managers as maybe some of the other ones they might get that we don't hear about. Indeed. And I suppose, Graham, we should lead perhaps finally onto the point about um, how preseason has changed for big teams over the years. Um, and particularly the emergence of these giant international tours that every big team seems to go on. Say Man United, I think they're still in Thailand as we record. PSG have been in Japan. Man City, as I mentioned, the US, along with Chelsea, Arsenal, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Bayern Munich, Juventus, and many others also playing in the US. Uh, Tottenham, as we mentioned, in South Korea. It used to be, Graham, that a big club like say Tottenham would just go and play local smaller teams in the London area. So, you know, I don't know, Lake Norient would get a game against Tottenham and so on. And it would always be the smaller team hosting a big team, a big payday for those smaller teams. But now it's more about playing fellow Premier League opponents in Thailand, Graham. 
Yeah, yeah, and this is where clubs have to merge the sporting side of things and the commercial side of things. And I've read many reports going back many years about how those two things can clash and managers not so happy. Was it was it Jose Mourinho, the, the Manchester City manager, who wasn't happy Van with Hall. the number of... Van Hal was Van Hal, Van Hal, yeah. yeah. So he wasn't happy with the number of, of, of games that United were having to play in far-flung foreign lands and the amount of travelling, and he didn't really feel that it gave his his team the best preparation. So there, there, there's always that clash he between them, the two. And, and Yeah, Graham, he made Man United executives buy a like block of hotel rooms next to the place where they were training. They were already staying at something like, you know, the Beverly Hills, whatever and such hotel that was like super expensive, but it was so far away from where they were training that Van Hall made them buy a block of rooms in the closer hotel so players could just crash yeah. because they were so overscheduled. That that doesn't sound like Louis Van Hall at all. That is out of character <laughs> for Louis Van Hall to forgo the Beverly Hills Hotel yeah. and instead book a, a block of rooms at the Days Inn yeah, Airport. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, that 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 clash is is very much something that clubs have to contend with. And as you as you mentioned there, Ryan, there's cl- the Premier League clubs in particular. They're they're on tour all over the place: America, Thailand, Australia, Austria. Uh, for Liverpool coming up in a few weeks, Singapore. What tends to be the case is they they will often play a game right before the start of the season I notice Arsenal are playing a game at the, the the Emirates Stadium against Sevilla so when when you get that close to the start of the season they do tend to start at the furthest away point and kind of work their way back where they might have a European camp and then they'll have a couple games at their own stadium I think Manchester United are playing oh I forget who Manchester United are playing but they've got a game at Old Trafford as well similar sort of thing to what Arsenal are, are having and so pre-season tours have been a thing for a solid two and a half decades now but more recently, we've seen the creation of these pre-season tournaments as well, where they pit the biggest clubs against each other in very contrived tournament settings. But it's, it's all really about selling tickets and getting these mega clubs into untapped, untapped markets. And that is just kind of, it's, it's, it's it cranked things up again, another level where you're having that Manchester City-Liverpool game that I, I mentioned earlier in the show, that was in Bangkok, I believe. And that maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you wouldn't have got that 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 sort of thing. But now it's very much a part of the, the pre-season schedule. Graham, I, I hear yeah. what you're saying. I don't appreciate you speaking ill of the International Champions Cup, even though you didn't name them. <laughs> I find that to be extremely rude, especially given that it doesn't exist anymore. I mean, that is just... That's just Does it t- not? Is it gone? I think it's gone. I think COVID ended up uh, ending it. So, yeah, the, oh, the ICC is no more, which is a, a real bummer. I do think, though, you're, you're spot on about all this, Graham, about you know this becoming a, a bigger and bigger part of soccer and, and having to marry, we already talked about having to marry the sporting side and the commercial side. Those are challenges that maybe didn't exist uh, a few decades ago. I think they existed a decade ago. They probably existed two decades ago. But much earlier on, at least in terms of preseason and the uh, the readily uh, available travel that now exists and, and how important branding is and, and consumerism is, those things are, are reaching their peak or they're continuing to, to, to go up on this slope in 2022. Teams want to be the foremost brand. You have Manchester City, Manchester United, PSG, Madrid, Barcelona. Every, you have all these clubs fighting to be the biggest club in the world. And, and part of how they can do that is by going to markets that don't have the same level of soccer that they have in their home country, or at least in their their part of Europe. That's why you see teams going to Asia. That's why you see teams coming to the U.S. for either the International Champions Cup, rest in peace, or just for one-off friendlies or, or somewhat less structured competitions, is they want those markets. And they can make bank off of some of these trips, even though I'm sure if you asked any coach in the world, 
they're not excited about this trip. They're not thinking it's the best way to prepare their squads. But at a certain point, you have to keep up with the financial demands that you've put on yourself and the requirements that you've helped put forward. And that's why I think we see a lot of these teams traveling thousands and thousands and thousands of miles before they even start the season. Yeah, it was actually one of the benefits of the pandemic was that the the teams were stuck at home on their own training pitch. And I think that was much more beneficial to coaches. Obviously, there was a lot of other challenges for football teams to contend with. But in terms of pre-season, I feel like managers are probably not so happy that we've gone back to the foreign tours and and, and the, the meaningless tournaments this year as if nothing even happened. To, to be fair, though, Graham, we can talk about, you know, the cynical reasons why we have these international tours and we can talk about the, the, the managers and the players perhaps being unhappy about having to partake in them. But if you think about the fans, I think they can, they can be really good. And I mean, living in Charlotte, North Carolina, when Liverpool or Chelsea would come to town or Borussia Dortmund, it'd be a really huge event and really special for the fans in the locale who may not be able to afford to or have the opportunity to go to Europe to watch these teams. So I think as much as we can be cynical about these kind of things, it does open up these teams and they are international organisations now. So we there is a positive side to them as well. There is. There is a positive side, of course, in fans, Premier League clubs and, and the big European clubs in particular, they have fans around the world and pre-season is maybe their only opportunity to see their see their team in person. I, I do feel a little bit sorry for those fans when they turn up expecting, I don't know, there'll be, there'll be Manchester United fans in Thailand that bought tickets expecting to see Cristiano Ronaldo and he is not involved in that, in that team at all. Or Liverpool only brought on, I think, Mohamed Salah for the last 20 or 30 minutes of that match. So they didn't exactly get much of a glimpse of the players that they actually wanted to see. They saw a lot of academy kids and they saw, I guess they saw Darwin Nunes, but uh, uh, some of the new signings being bedded in and maybe not the established stars. But you're right, it is an opportunity for fans to see their team that they, they wouldn't normally have that chance. Maybe, Graham, going to see your, your Manchester United and whatnot in, in Asia and America is a bit like going to see a Guns N' Roses concert. You're getting the brand, but you don't know what actually kind of product you're going to get on the night. <laughs> yeah, you don't know what the sound quality is going to be like. <laughs> exactly. You don't know if Axel's going to show. All right, I think that pretty much uh, wraps up pre-season. Tete, any more to add or shall we, uh, shall we bid adieu to this podcast? Just that I feel like your comparison of Axel Rose to maybe Cristiano Ronaldo in this comparison sort of fits pretty well. So I, I like that one. I like the preseason tours. I think it's always cool to get to see the team you support, even if it is the academy players and a few of the reserve players. It's still, I think, because you end up around a bunch of people who also support that club, and especially maybe a decade ago when that was less, not less common, but it was still sort of like it was a fun event to go up to Philly and be surrounded by Manchester United fans. It felt like sort of one of those, like like you're just getting to experience a community. And I remember going to a Man United preseason game when they played the Metro Stars and Tim Howard had just joined Manchester United. And there was this like, it was a bunch of New York fans celebrating Tim Howard. It was a bunch of Manchester United fans celebrating Tim Howard. So you can get those kind of, kind of cool moments and maybe you get an academy player who can break through and become big. And you saw them when they played Chivas in Cincinnati or something. You never know what's going to happen. <laughs> Indeed. A lesson for life there, Taylor, I should say. Uh, yes. But that has been Soccer 101 for this week. Taylor, thank you so much for your contributions. Thank you so much for your contributions, Ryan. Oh, too kind. Joe Lowry, thank you very much, sir. Thank you, Ryan. I'm glad we're doing this and not doing Navy SEAL training. So really grateful for that. And Graham Rubman, thank you so much for your contributions, sir. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. And listener, thank you for joining us on Soccer 101. We'll be back on the feed with another one next week. But for now, catch you later. 